Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. So if you want to look at Psalm 73, um, you know, with Calvary Chapel, we go through scripture, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and, and uh, it was really tempting to do a topical message this morning, having to do with the election and everything, and, uh, but I try to stay away from that kind of stuff. Um, however, um, this chapter really spoke to me personally about basically where I'm at. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been it's just I'm probably driving my wife nuts but I I've been you know every chance I get I'm looking at one of those news things about what's the latest WikiLeak you know what's the latest thing that's come out and all this stuff and and uh, it's I'll be honest with you I'm worked up about it I'm angry you know it's like I can't believe they're getting away with this and and uh, you look at all the stuff that's going on and it's like it's just it, we're in rough shape as a nation, and and uh, so the Lord really spoke to me through this psalm, and and I pray that He speaks through you, to you as well through this. Um, so Psalm seventy three, it's titled a Psalm of Asaph. Now, who was Asaph? He was uh, born into the tribe of Levi, so he was part of the Levitical priesthood, and uh, he was actually a musician. He was a singer. Uh, he composed music and psalms, and later on he was recognized as a seer, a very wise person. So Asaph was appointed by King David uh, to be one of the leaders of the choir in the house of the Lord. So he was basically a worship leader uh, there in the house of the Lord. Um, years later, generations later, there'd be a group of men known as the sons of Asaph, and uh, they were either literally sons of Asaph, or probably most likely it was like a guild or a group of Levitical worship leaders who followed, you know, in the footsteps of Asaph. Those sons of Asaph, they'd play a prominent role in the revival of Israel when they came back from Babylon, Babylonian captivity. The sons of Asaph, they were in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and you know, they're, everybody's starting to worship the Lord once more now they're back in, in Jerusalem. Well, this man, Asaph, who wrote this psalm this morning, um, he composed Psalm 73. He was the man who David appointed, like I mentioned, to be one of the worship leaders. But it was when the Ark of the Covenant, that's when we first hear about him, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to, um, to the house of the Lord. It was brought to, uh, from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem. Remember, it had been taken captive by the Philistines. And uh, it was with the Philistines for a short while. Uh, lots of bad stuff happened to them. So they're like, let's give it back to the, to the Israelis, to the Israelites. And so they put it on a cart and sent it back. And it stayed in the house of Abinadab for many, many, for a long time. Uh, and David's heart was, man, I'm going to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so, um, and you know that story, and it's in First Samuel, is the story of the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. Well, Asaph was one of the worship leaders during that time. So that was a... That was a very joyous time for the children of Israel. So the context of this psalm here, um, again, I said Asaph composed it. He gives a public profession as a worship leader and as a Christian, or you know, as a follower of the Lord. They weren't Christians at that time because Jesus hadn't uh, died on the cross yet. But he made a public profession, but then he also gave a private confession and we're going to look at that this morning as public profession and as private 
confession. So verse 1 starts out with his public profession. Psalm 70 through uh, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. You know, as a worship leader... Even, even the worship leaders we have, it's their job not to entertain people. It's not to, to, to just, you know, go wow, to, to make people just go, wow, look at that. You know, their job, their goal is to point people to God, to declare his praises. And Asaph knew this to be true. And so that's what he's professing. Truly, God is good to Israel. And he's speaking specifically of the nation of Israel, but not only the nation of Israel. Because he says, and to such as are pure in heart. Um, Israel, the name Israel means led by God. And to such as are pure in heart. Well, this morning, if you're a man or a woman who's led by God, if, if you're a born-again Christian, you are pure in heart. And maybe this morning you go, man, I don't feel very pure in heart this morning. Uh, maybe you've already committed sin this morning in some way. But let me read this scripture to you. Because if you, ever born again, if you are a born-again believer, let me read this. It applies to you. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, cleanse, uh, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So truly, God is good to Israel and to such as is pure in heart, which would be you and I as well. God is good to us. That's Asaph's profession. That's what he's proclaiming. God is good. And as a worship leader in the house of God, this is what he is, is publicly proclaiming. That's what, he's public, that's what his ministry is all about, pointing to the goodness of God. But now, in the rest of this psalm here, he becomes just totally transparent, and he makes a confession. So we have his profession, now his confession. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now you have to do like a worship leader sharing that or a pastor. You know, I almost fell from the, I almost walked away, you know, almost fell. And, you know, he's being brutally honest here in this psalm. He's saying, you know, I know and will profess that God is good to his people, but man, I almost stumbled in my walk as a child of God. I almost slipped off the path of righteousness. Well, the good news here is that he says almost, right? Uh, he, he, he felt like he was close to walking or stumbling, but he didn't stumble and fall. But he came perilously close. And how did it happen? Verse 3, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked of the wicked you know asaph's confession he's acknowledging god is good to his people but as he looked around and he saw the wickedness of people it seemed like you know god's good to his people but it's he's almost equally good or maybe even better than good to the wicked people it's like you know you'd think that good people would have things you know things would be going good in their lives because God is good, and the wicked people would be just the opposite, right? They they'd have a lousy life, they'd be miserable and everything. But he looked around and he saw the wicked people, and man, they're prospering. 
What gives? And so it was really a struggle for Asaph. And now he kind of goes into detail and explains why. Verse 4, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. I don't know about you, but that's a prevalent feeling I have this morning. It's like, you know, you look at the people that are rich and powerful, and they seem to get away with crime that you and I, if we did it, we'd be in jail. We'd be locked up for a long time. And yet these people that have, they, they can pull strings, they have money, or they have influence, and they can get away. It's like they're above the law. And it bothers me. I don't know if it bothers you. It bothers me. It bothered Asaph when he looked around and saw that. If God is good, you would think that the good always die peacefully and the wicked would always die in agony. But that's not necessarily the truth either. It's funny. I was, uh, I, you know, I thought, well, I wonder if I were to look into, and I, and I Googled it, and I don't know that Google's all the most accurate source of information, but you can get a lot of information there. And I, I know one of the things that I looked up was uh, people's last dying words. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, well, I don't know who's wicked and who's good, but I came across one that I thought was kind of interesting, uh, Humphrey Bogart. His last words were something to, I don't have it written down here, it's something to the effect of, um, I should have not switched from uh, bourbon to uh, martinis. I mean, that was his last words. He's like, wow, he doesn't sound like he's in too much agony, you know. Um, but you would think that that would be the truth, right? The good would die peacefully and everything would be good, and that, we know that's not always the case. And the wicked would it'd be miserable at the end, and, and it's not necessarily the case. Verse 6, Therefore pride serves as their necklace, Violence covers them like a garment. You know, if you're very, very wealthy and, and you're a showy person, you know, you buy this big jewelry, fancy jewelry, you get the latest in fashion clothing, and you walk around, you kind of flaunt it. And the wicked, they flaunted their pride and their violence. They could get away, you know, they could get what they want through intimidation or, you know, bribing people or whatever. They know it, and they're proud of it. It's like, we, you know, it's not a big deal to them. Verse 7, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. I mean, they already have more than they need or could even wish for, and yet it says their eyes bulge with abundance. What it means is they have an insatiable appetite for more and for more. More money, more power, more possessions, more fame, whatever. They're just unsatisfied, and they have this insatiable appetite. Verse 8, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. They, they talk down to everyone below them. I mean, they, they know that they're the upper crust and they, they look down on everyone around them. They, they're scoffers. It says they speak boastfully against heaven. In other words, they're speaking against God and against righteousness. They're not intimidated by anything or anyone. Verse 10, Therefore, his people return here, and his waters of a full cup are drained by them. You go, huh? <laughs> what does that mean? Um, this verse has been interpreted a few different ways. Um, the New Living Translation says, So the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. 
And I think what the translators are inferring there is that these wicked people, they set an example for others to follow. And people adopt those values of these wicked people that are prosperous. And it seems like they can, you know, they're above the law and and they just make things happen when they want to. And people adopt their values and their attitudes. It's like, you know, I want what they have and I see how they're they're living their life. So I'm just going to do the same thing. Um, I see that they get the rewards. They're obviously getting rewarded, so I'm gonna, this must be what you do to get rewarded. I think that's what uh, the interpretation from that translation. There's another interpretation that I think spoke more to me anyways. When it says, therefore his people return here, as Asaph was considering the wickedness, the prosperity of the wickedness, it's like it's not just a passing thought. It's not like, you know, just thought about it once and then forgot about it. It's occupying his mind. He's returning back to that issue over and over and over again. Man, how come the wicked are prospering in God's people? I mean, it's, it's like there's no, it's not fair. Um, waters of a full cup are drained by them. Think about, you know, somebody drinking, they downing a glass of liquor, you know, bottoms up and drinking it all the way to the bottom. They're getting drunk. And, and it's like Asaph was becoming intoxicated with the thoughts of why are the wicked prospering? Why, there just seems to be an imbalance in, in life here. Uh, it's, it's all that he can think about. He's revisiting it over and over again. It, it, he's dwelling on it. Like I said, me, you know, for me, I'm almost intoxicated with this election. Um, I've got election stress. Uh, you, know? I, you don't think that that's true. Listen to this. There's an article. It's titled, This Election Will End, The Mental Damage May Not. And uh, it says more than half of Americans are experiencing election-related stress compared to that often attributed to work, money, or the economy, the American Psychological Association has said. And while the good news is the presidential contest will end next week, the bad news is that because of the ferocity of the campaign, the mental damage may linger. And for some groups, it may get even worse depending on who wins. And the article goes on to explain different things. There was another article that said this doctor was predicting that there's going to be a lot more, uh, an increase in heart attacks after the election. Because people are just, everybody's so, you know, polarized in this thing here. Um, That's what I think this verse is speaking about. It's just, it's just, it's occupying Asaph's heart, his mind, his heart. He he just can't get away from it. It's just, that's always, he's always thinking about that. Verse 11, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? See, the result, however you want to interpret verse 10, the result is the same. They see the prosperity of the wicked and they go, man, either God doesn't know what's going on or he doesn't care or he's powerless to do anything about it. It's like, where is God? Verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Again, this is what Asaph saw all around him. And this is how he felt as a result. Now he's getting, again, he's, he's very transparent. Verse 13, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. You can kind of catch his heart here. It's like, why am I trying to live this righteous life? What's the benefit to it? I mean, I'm working hard. I'm honest. Maybe, maybe you're you know, a hardworking, honest person who doesn't cheat 
or steal from your employer, and yet you know other employees that are taking advantage of the company, or they're cheating, or they're stealing, and they're getting away with it, and, and you're the one who's working hard, and they're not, and, and it's like, where's the justice in this? Why do I report all my earnings and don't cheat on my taxes? And I know everybody else is, and they're getting away with it, or insurance fraud, whatever it is. What's the use of living a godly life? And Asaph, a worship leader, this is his confession. That's what he's feeling in his heart as he's looking around and seeing the wickedness around him. Verse 14, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every mor- uh, chastened, not chased, chastened every morning. It's like, you know, when I do something wrong, I'm plagued by it. In other words, I think he's saying, my conscience is bugging me. I can't get away with things. Every time I do something wrong, I suffer the consequences. When I was uh, growing up, and I used to hate this when my mom would say this to me, but I was a rebellious teen, and I'd get into trouble. And whenever I get into trouble, it's like my friends would never get into trouble. I'd always get the one to be caught. And my mom would say, you know what? God's not getting, letting you go. He's got his hand on your life. And, and she was absolutely right, but I hated to hear it. And, but I, I was always the one getting caught with things and stuff. Um, I remember one time, you know, my friends they, in high school, you know, these guys would cut classes. They'd just take off, go to the beach because we lived in California. They'd do whatever and uh, come back the next day and go, hey, man, we had a good time. Went to the beach yesterday, you know, and they would talk about this stuff. And I'm like, man, these guys are getting away. I'm going to do that. So I remember one day. I decided to cut school. Me and, a, and I called, talked to this other guy. Let's go to the beach. So we went to the beach, you know, came back. The next day, I, you know, I didn't think ahead. Like, well, how do I get out of this? I came, came to school, and I didn't have a note for my mom or anything like that. You know, I didn't. I, didn't, I ended up getting suspended for two days. It's like, well, what's the benefit in that, you know? <laughs> oh, brother. So I can identify with Asaph, or at least I could back then. But even now as a pastor, man, the Lord's got me on a short leash. You know, I can't get away with too much. And all of a sudden the conviction comes and, and uh, I get chastened by the Lord. But see, now Asaph has a real problem because he's in a public place of ministry. People are looking to him as, as the worship leader. He's in very visible ministry. And whether he likes it or not, people are looking up to him because he's representing you know, the Lord in front of other people. And so verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. In other words, if I had voiced what I'm feeling, like what's the use in following the Lord, I would have dealt treacherously. I would have caused these people that are looking up to me to stumble. I saw a movie not too long ago on on, uh, Netflix. Um, It's called U-571. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it before. It's a military movie, but it's about these, in World War II, the Germans had this Enigma code machine, and uh, the the U.S., they want to get their hands on it because they can decode the the German messages because these U-boats were sinking ships all over the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, so they come up with this plan in the movie. I don't know if it's true or not. In fact, I don't think it is. I think it's it's, uh, fiction. But they come up with this plan. They disguise a a submarine as a German U-boat, and they send this crew out because there's one U-boat that's disabled in the ocean, and it's waiting for a supply supply sub to come and give them the, the stuff so they can get back going again. And the Americans find out about it. So they send this American sub 
to the, to get to that place before the other one does, and they're going to pose as German officers. And so they they send a boarding crew, the second in command, the captain stays on the sub, but the second command and a, a boarding party of you know five or six guys, they go they they're pretending like they're Germans and they're to get on that ship and then they're to to take the the, the Germans captive basically, and and uh, so they do that. They get on the ship, you know, things seem to be going fairly well. Well, all of a sudden, there's, uh, and, and they've captured the German crew and everything, and all of a sudden, that German sub shows up and torpedoes the, the sub that they just left. And so their captain and the rest of their crew and the, and the German prisoners, they end up all dying. Um, and so this boarding party, they're left on this submarine. It's a German sub, you know. And so um, they're looking at the controls, trying to figure out what's, you know, what's what and stuff. And, and uh, they have to get away from that sub. And it's a long story. But anyways, um, so the crew's looking at this second in command. They're like, what do we do? And the guy goes, man, I don't know. And anyways, eventually they end up sinking the sub, the, the enemy sub and stuff. But their chief petty officer, he's this old guy, and uh, he goes, uh, it's, it's later on this other scene, they're having him and the, the, uh, the guys having coffee together, the second in command. And he goes, hey, can I have permission to speak freely with you? And he goes, yeah, sure. He goes, uh, those men are looking up to you because you're, you're the officer. You represent discipline and order and stuff they're looking to you for answers and if you say i don't know man that's going to kill a crew it's going to kill a crew he says the skipper always knows what to do whether or not he knows you always you always portray that and you see i think that's what asaph is feeling here if i if i if i completely let down and just be completely totally transparent how many people are going to stumble i can't so he's like i can't even share what's on my heart how i'm feeling Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. See, it wasn't until Asaph went to the house of the Lord where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the worship of the Lord takes place. It was there that he regained the true perspective on life. It wasn't until Asaph went to church, basically, and it wasn't that, you know, Asaph said, I need to go to church to feel better. You know, if I, I, the music didn't motivate him. Uh, it didn't entertain him. The message didn't inspire him or make him feel better. What happened? It says there, then he understood. See, then he gained an understanding in his mind and in his heart about the end that awakes the wicked. How does that happen? Well, through prayer and worship, first of all, Asaph understood, man, God's on the throne. It gave him an eternal perspective. God's on the throne. Through the teaching of God's word, Asaph understood God's eternal truth, and it transcends time. It's how God views things. You know, man looks at things a certain way, but that's not necessarily how God views it. And then for Asaph, being under the old covenant, you know, they would do the Levitical sacrifices. And it was a reminder that blood must be shed for sin. For you and I, we come to church you know, we have the worship and we have the teaching of the word, but we're not cutting up lambs. You know, we're not, we're not sacrificing animals, but we have the cross of Christ. And we have communion. Like this morning, we're going to be celebrating communion. It's a reminder to each one of us, man, there's a price that has to be paid for sin. And for you and I, man, the good news is Jesus paid that price with his precious blood. What did Asaph understand about the ungodly after going to church, basically? Verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. 
You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. Remember back in verse 2, Asaph felt like he almost was slipping from his faith in God. Man, I stumbled. I'm, I almost stumbled. I almost fell. Um, but here's the reality. The reality. Psalm 37, verse th- 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. That's the truth. That's the reality for those that are born-again believers in Jesus Christ, for those that are following the Lord. Verse uh, Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. That's the truth. Remember back in verse 14, Asaph was complaining that, you know, whenever he did something wrong, he was always plagued. His conscience bothered him. Why was that? Well, it was because the Spirit of God was convicting him. You and I as born-again believers, man, we have that same Holy Spirit. It's dwelling inside of us. He's with us always, and he's convicting us of sin, and he's correcting us, and he's guiding us, and he's speaking to us. Man, that's a blessing that we have. Asaph was always being chastened. And you know, the Bible tells us if God loves you, he's going to chasten you. So if you're being chastened by the Lord, man, praise God, because that means he loves you. That means he cares about you. And And he's doing this, you know, just like a father would chasten his son. If you see you as parents, you see your son or your daughter doing something wrong, you don't just let them go and do it, especially if it's harmful or if you know that, you know, sooner or later, man, it, it's, it's developing a bad character in them. You're going to do something about it. Why? Because you love them. You care about them. You're going to correct them. That's what God does with us and, and because he loves us. Remember in verse 11, Asaph wondered why God seemed silent. And if you look at what's going on in the world today, you look at, you know, all these WikiLeaks or just, you know, we've, we've thought all these things. And now it's kind of like almost like proof that there's things going on, although they would say it's a vast Russian conspiracy, you know, but we, we know better than that. Um, why does God, it seems like God's not saying anything or doing anything about it. Psalm 50 addresses this. Verse 16 says, but to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. He's speaking to the wicked. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. God's speaking to the wicked, and he says, you think because I'm silent, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm not. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to deal with you. People make the mistake, the, you know, they, they mistake the silence of God for his condoning their sin. And like Donald Trump says, it's a huge mistake, man. It's huge, huge, huge mistake. <laughs> I, I can't do it quite like that, but you know what I mean. God's patient with people, and he's, he's giving them time to repent, but also the more, that, the more silent he is, they, they continue on, they're just filling up the full measure of God's wrath against their sin. And when judgment comes, it may seem like it's a, a long way out, but when it comes, it's going to be swift and fast and severe for those. Verse 20 
As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. See, the reality is the ungodly are living in a dream state. You know, they think they can continue on doing what they're doing with impunity. But one day they're going to wake up from that dream. The reality is one day the veil of this life is going to be pulled back and eternity is going to be in their view and all of a sudden the dream is going to be over and reality is going to sink in. There's judgment for the way you lived your life. He talks about, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. It's kind of like the thought of, you know, waking the sleeping giant. You know, you don't want to wake up or you go into, you know, you're by a bear cave. You don't want to wake up a bear, you know, because, you know, it's going to happen. It's not that God's sleeping. That's not what Asaph is saying. He's just using very picturesque pictures here. God's fully aware of what's going on. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Those people that think they're getting away with things, they're not. God's, God's got it all in view, and he's going to deal with it in his time. But Asaph here is using very picturesque images. It's like when God awakens from his sleeping sleep, he's going to rise up to judge. That's what he's saying here. So now Asaph, you know, he went to the house of the Lord. He, he, he made this profession, but his confession was, you know, this is what I'm professing. But man, I look around and it just, the wicked are prospering. And God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. But then he goes to the house of the Lord and, and, and his perspective, he's got that right perspective again. His perspective's changed. And as a result of that, now he feels shame for even having been caught up in the envy of the wicked. Psalm 73, uh, verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. A brute beast. What's that? Well, it's in the sense of an animal that seems to have no thought of eternity. You know, an animal, they they just act instinctively. They feed their immediate needs of their flesh. That's what an animal does. They don't think ahead about that stuff. And that's the way the godless person is. They live this way. They're just satisfying their flesh. There's no thought of eternity in their hearts. And where you and I, you know, when we're not spending time with the Lord in worship and reading his words, it's easy to lose sight of reality. The more we're in the world and we're not, we're not in God's word, we're not in church, we're not in fellowship, we're not spending our own personal time before the Lord, we can get caught up in the thinking of the world. It's intoxicating. Asaph basically is saying, I got sucked into thinking like the world thinks before I came to the house of the Lord. After spending time in the house of the Lord now, Asaph has a better understanding of his profession. Remember he said, God is good. Well, how is God good? Verse, uh, the first thing he says there is that Asaph understood God's guarantee of his presence. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you you hold me by my right hand. God's with us always. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. We can't escape God's presence. That's a blessing if you're walking with the Lord. If you're in disobedience, you can't escape God's presence, man. He's always watching you. But for you and I, man, we're going through, the, you know, things are doing, people are doing things to us, or we're getting hurt, or whatever's going on. Just remember this, man, God's with you. He knows your thoughts. He, he, he knows what's happening. He's paying attention. In fact, when the angel announced the birth of Jesus, remember, they, they gave the name, Emmanuel, that, that's the name. It rec- it's, it's speaking about God's character. What does Emmanuel mean? God's with us. And it became a reality in Jesus Christ. He's with you and I. The second thing Asaph understood is God has a firm grip on him. He's not going to let him go. God was holding him up with his right hand. You know, the, the picture that I have in my mind is, you know, as a parent or a grandparent or whatever, you know, there's a little toddler that's just learning to walk. And so as, as a parent or a grandparent, you, you hold their hand and you walk with them. And, you know, they may trip because they're, you know, they're just learning. They're not really sure on their feet. And they may end up starting to fall. But, man, you got them, right? And you just pull them back up. You got them. But that's how God walks with us. He's teaching us how to walk. He's giving us a little bit of freedom so that we're learning how to walk, but he's not going to let us go. He's not going to let you wipe out, get wiped out and stuff. He cares about you. He loves you. And so it's just like a parent. That's, so that's what Asaph had this understanding. Man, man God's holding on to me. I, I may stumble, but I'm not going to fall. Uh, he, he's not going to let me be wiped out. Verse 24 says, you, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. The third thing Asaph understood is that God would guide him through life. How does God guide you and I? Well, as you and I follow God's precepts found in the Bible, as you and I follow those things, God guides us through in life. We can navigate life as we follow his precepts. Not only that, but as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And as you and I learn to recognize the voice of the Spirit, there's a lot of voices speaking to us, but as we learn to recognize the voice of the Spirit and then obey the voice of the Holy Spirit, he's going to guide us in, in the right ways. I, I, how, do you, how do you recognize the voice of the Spirit? I, I, you start listening, and you know sometimes I've listened and go, okay, the Lord's telling me to, and I've done something like, ooh, that wasn't the Lord. Okay, well, that voice wasn't the Lord. <laughs> and so I'm going to ignore that voice because that wasn't the Lord, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay attention to the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get quiet before him and, and seek his, his, his speaking to me. And the Holy Spirit does speak to us. You know, we, we start doing something, and it's like, I uh, probably shouldn't be doing that, you know, and, and that's the Holy Spirit speaking to us, guiding us. So Asaph understood God would guide him through life. The fourth thing Asaph understood was the glory of heaven awaited him. Yeah, this life is not all, it's not all there is to it. There, there's, heaven is waiting for you and I, the glory of heaven. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 2.9. I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even comprehend all the stuff that the Lord has prepared for you and I. So now that Asaph has the right view of reality, 
and he more fully understands the goodness of God, it leads Asa in the last of this, of this chapter to draw some conclusions. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. You know, in heaven, there's going to be believers that passed on before us, you know. Uh, if you have a loved one that had a relationship with the Lord, you're going to meet them again in heaven. There's a whole cloud of witnesses that are, that are waiting for us in heaven. And Asaph understood that. There's going to be the angels. There's a whole host of heavenly hosts, created beings, you know, the four living creatures. Uh, there's, there's all this in heaven. There's the, the New Jerusalem for us, you know, and then there's the pearly gates. I mean, there, there's just, there's things, we can't even comprehend everything that's waiting for us. We know that, and Asaph understood all that, but that wasn't his longing. His longing was to be with the Lord. He loved the Lord that much. I, I just... Whom I have in heaven but you. It doesn't, if, if, if I'm the only one there, as long as I'm with you, Lord, that's all I care about. In this life on earth, Asaph understood that relying on relationships or setting his focus on people around him was not the answer. If your hope is on one of these candidates and you're like, man, that's, they're going to set things straight, you, you're probably in for a disappointment. People will at times fail us. People will at times hurt us. They'll disappoint us at times. And if they are our sole focus and desire, man, we're in for a big letdown. See, our desire and hope is solely in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's faithful. Because he's promised he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. And God never breaks his promise. He never has and he never will. What else? Verse 26. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, our relationship with the Lord is the most important relationship that we can have. Asaph, again, he was from the tribe of Levi, right? Now, the tribes, the, all the 12 tribes of Israel, minus the tribe of Levi, they were given tribal land. They were given portions of the promised land. This chunk is for Reuben. This chunk is for you know Issachar and whatever. But the tribe of Levi, they didn't get a portion of land. Why? Because they were dedicated to serving the Lord. And, and so the Lord says, I'm going to be your portion. I'm going to be your inheritance. God is enough, is what he was saying. I'm enough for you. And you know, for you and I, let me just ask this rhetorically. If everything is stripped away from you, your relationships, your possessions, man, even your physical health. Is Jesus enough? So Asaph came to that point in his life where he's like, man, Jesus, God's the Lord's enough. He's my portion. Verse 27. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. So, this is the reality for the wicked that Asaph had earlier started to envy. And don't envy them because their end is destruction. And because Asaph now has a true perspective on life and eternity, now he has a better understanding of God's goodness. The next step is what do you do about it? Verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. I know I've shared this many times, but it, it's true. The verse in the Bible that just spoke to me when I had given my heart back to the Lord, I had walked away from him for so much, for so long, was draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And it became a reality, man. I, I draw, drew near to the Lord and, and he was faithful and he showed up. And, well, he never left. He, I'm the one that left. He, he was there 
And I started seeing his hand in my life again because I had been ignoring him. And, and uh, the Bible says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you're seeking the Lord Jesus this morning, he's not going to let you down. We might let you down. Other people might let you, but he won't. He promises because he's faithful. Why don't we go Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for passages of Scripture like this. Lord, that just reveal the struggles that even, even leaders in ministry can have, Lord, when they see things going around them that just, just seems like you're allowing things to happen, Lord. And, and Lord, even today we look around at what's going on at the, the people who have all the money and have all the power and all the influence, Lord. It seems like they can do whatever they want and nothing ever happens to them. And, Lord, we can start even getting to the point of envying them. And, and Lord, it can occupy our thoughts. We can we could start thinking like the world. And, and, Lord, we lose sight of eternity. We lose the right perspective. And so I thank you this morning for your word, Lord, that, Lord, it brought Asaph back to a right understanding, the reality of things. And, Lord, this morning I thank you for uh, bringing us back to that point, Lord. Maybe we've been caught up so much in, in what's going on that we've lost sight of eternity And so, Lord, we thank you for those reminders to bring us back this morning. Lord, I pray that as Asaph, just as Asaph realized that he just needs to draw near to you and that that you are good, you truly are good to those who are led by you, that, Lord, that that would be our understanding this morning as well. And, Lord, if there's areas in our lives where we're struggling, Lord, I pray that, Lord, uh, Lord, this scripture would just speak to our hearts and that, Lord, we would follow your precepts, Lord, we would draw near to you, we would seek you, we wouldn't put our hope in other people, and that, Lord God, I, I thank you that you're faithful. And I pray that, Lord, you just continue to do that work in each one of our hearts. Lord, I pray that each one of us would get to that point where we can just say, I don't have anyone in heaven but you. I don't have anyone on the earth but you. You're my portion, Lord. I may fail. My heart, my physical health might fail, but Lord, you're my portion. I pray that for each one of us this morning, Lord God. Thank you so much for what you've done for us and what you are doing in us, Lord. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.